Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. We're going to continue today in our Soul Detox series. How many were here last week? How many enjoyed that? How many got on the podcast and listened again? I'm telling you, soul, it's a deep thing, it's a big thing, and it's really the journey of life that we're on is to renew our mind, change our thoughts to see things differently. But I'm excited we have a special guest with us this morning, Bishop Jamie Engelhart. Jamie and I have known each other for probably about a year now, and um, it's one of those things, man, Facebook's so cool because you can just connect with people. And so it started out with, with an IM conversation which transpired to, you know, he actually gave me his phone number. I'm like, man, you're so famous, and I don't get it. No, I'm just <laughs> But we just started talking, and we thought, man, we, we're really on the same path together and seeing things, and, and we're of the same tribe. That's how you usually put it. And just really seeing people transformed by the love of God, by seeing who they really are, and that he delights in them. It makes a, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Not only will he be speaking with us today, but Wednesday, this Wednesday, say this Wednesday, February 14th for three in a row, 14th, the 21st, and 28th, he's going to do a mini-series called Metamorphosis. He's going to go a little bit deeper and really show us what that soul is all about and how to, how to heal those areas through the healing of Jesus Christ in our life. It's tremendous, amen? So without further ado, please welcome Bishop Jamie Engelhart. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, everybody. All of the folks that weathered the storm, and thank God for four-wheel drive. I will never, ever again live in Michigan without a four-wheel drive, but uh, it is great to be here and uh, great to be able to always spend time with uh, your pastors, and uh, we continue to get to know each other more and love their hearts and love, uh, love how hungry they are for present truth. You know, I love... You know, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice he didn't see every word, every word that precedes out of the mouth of God. A lot of people are living on preceding word, and they're not sure what proceeding word is. They're still full of mixture. They're still full of a lot of old covenant understanding. What is God saying? What, what is the Spirit saying? Not what he said, because there's a lot of stuff that he said that he's not saying. Listen, aren't you glad that we didn't have to bring a turtle dove this morning? <clears throat> How many know he said that, but he's not saying that? Aren't you glad when your kids act up, you don't take them out in the backyard and stone them little buggers anymore? All right. Just because just he said it doesn't mean he's saying. We, we have to live by the proceeding word of God, not just the preceding word. And a lot of times uh, there's been confusion with that because we've just thought everything in the Bible has the same value. The truth is everything in the Bible is important, but the new covenant carries more value, potency. I mean, the words of Jesus are going to trump everything. Well, I'm, I'm just telling you, the new covenant trumps the old. It's a new and better. Ooh, I love that right there. We live in a better covenant, in a better day, with a better life, a better, everything better, better blood, better promises. Thank God for Jesus. And so it's extremely important. But I, listen, I want to encourage you, these next three Wednesdays, uh, we're going to dive into some fun stuff, and uh, we're going to deal with the salvation of the soul. You know, Peter said the end of your faith is the saving of your soul, not the beginning of your faith. The uh, truth is what we've said for years is, you know, we have revival meetings, and I've had preachers tell me, well, we had, we had 30 souls saved 
you know, uh, in a revival meeting. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. So what you're telling me is there's been 30 people in your church for 5, 10, 15 years. They've been growing and maturing in the gospel. Their mind is no longer carnal. Their will is no longer rebellious. And their emotions are no longer warped. Because that's what it means to get a soul saved. You realize that, right? Just uh, getting a soul saved is different than getting a spirit born again. What we've done is is, is we've spent most of our time, uh, Jesus never told us to go into all the world and get people saved. I won't find it anywhere in the scripture. It says go into all the world and make disciples. It's disciplinarians. It is seeing the soul. He that wins souls is wise, not he that wins spirits. And we focus on big crusades. And I remember I went to I was in college in Minneapolis, and one of my best friends worked at Billy Graham Association. And thank God for Billy; he's done incredible things all over the world. But his own statistics will tell you that when they go into a city, of all the thousands of people that walk down an aisle, that a year or two later, when they try to find them in local churches, they can't. Uh, many times they pray to prayer but then they never got discipled. It's still God wants us to win souls. That's, it's, it's, it's seeing lives changed and transformed. So we're, we're going to dive into that in all kinds of dimensions and matters. And, and so ju- just trust me on this. Don't think you already know uh, maybe what's going to be said because we're just going to peel the onion in some fun ways. And I'm going to start it this morning. So I'm going to need you to stick with me because this is such, such a heavy topic. And I'm going to do my best to try to have a little fun this morning. Is that all right? Can we do that? All right. Turn with me to Third John. And I want to read an extremely familiar passage uh, that for much of the body of Christ, especially those of us raised around a lot of maybe uh, people call things hyper-grace. We can call it hyper-prosperity. Uh, you know, we've taken this hugely out of context without truly understanding what it was talking about. So Third John. Starting in verse 1 of 3 John, only one chapter in, in this book. The elder to the beloved Gaius, who I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children... Walk in the truth. Notice not that my children hear the truth, not that my children have the truth, but that my children walk in the truth. Now, this, of course, is the beloved apostle, John. And just just so you know, you know, John is translated grace. I don't believe it's an accident that John was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. We have three Marys. We had Mary, his mother. We have Mary Magdalene. And then it says Mary, his aunt, his auntie. All right, because how many of you know that even at your incarceration, everybody's mama's going to show up and they got that one auntie that shows up to everything. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's just the way that it is. There's, and then Mary Magdalene, she wasn't leaving Jesus' side. She received so much mercy. She's like, I'm not going anywhere. But it's interesting to me that there was no other disciple there other than John. I don't believe that's an accident because, first of all, Mary in the Greek language is translated rebellion. And at the foot of the cross, there's three Marys, and I believe that's a picture of all of humanity, fully rebellious, spirit, soul, and body, not able to be transformed by the law or themselves, but needing a glimpse 
of Jesus and the finished work. And the only disciple there is John because grace is the one thing that is always pointing you directly back to Christ. It's not going to point you to law. It's not going to point you to your works. Matter of fact, I think John understood something there because John writes in 1 John 3, he said, here is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. I I think it's a beautiful picture that even though we understand why Peter wasn't there, Peter messed up. Peter's like, man, I can't go stand in front of him. I denied him three times. But John ran away from Jesus butt naked. Uh, I mean, in the garden, listen, John, John also ran away. John didn't stand next to Jesus. John got so scared, he ran out of his clothes. You know how scared you got to be to run out of your clothes? I mean, that's not scared. That's scared. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's some intense stuff. But John understood something pre-cross that was a post-cross revelation. When John said, love is not my love for him, but his love for me. John's like, I can stand in front of him at the cross because it's not about my performance and my love. It's about his love for me, not my love for him. That's that's a beautiful thing. And so John, the beloved, the grace lover, the one who always laid his head on Jesus' chest, grace is closest to his heart. He's the one that he says... King James and a few other translations say, I wish above all things. A lot of newer translations say, I I wish and, and my hope is to all respect in every area of your life that you prosper. Now, see, part of a problem is we... We hear prosperity, and automatically a lot of times our mindset goes to who's got money and who doesn't have money. But this is actually what the word is translated. It means to have good fortune, to be on the right path, to succeed, to have a happy journey, also to succeed in business in its root form. In other words, all John is saying, he's saying to this son in the faith of his, he's saying, listen, man, Above everything else, my desire is that your journey be full of happiness. He didn't say that, that everything would always be wonderful. He, he didn't say, I mean, I mean, man, John got boiled in oil. I mean, that's not a real happy thing to go through. All right, I mean, that's some pretty intense stuff. I mean, he gets banished to an island. I, I mean, Jesus taught, listen, man, life is going to happen in this world, but your response to it is the only thing that you can determine. You can't stop bad things from happening. You can't stop these situations. But I wish above everything else that your journey, man, is of good success. And I don't want you just successful with your money. I want your relationships successful. I want you to succeed in your marriage. I want you to succeed in in, in your business, in every relationship, in every area of your life. He's like, man, listen, man, my desire for you is that you prosper fully. Not just that you have a bunch of money, even though, thank God for that. And I, I just got back from this past month from Ecuador, and I went on a five-day uh, trip with Compassion International, and I got completely overwhelmed with the poverty. And, and I was standing there the one day, and I said, I said God, w- we're going to need millions of people full of the Holy Ghost that you can trust millions and billions of dollars with if we're going to transform this world. If we're going to, if we're going to see the kingdom of God expand, man, we, we, we need folks that have a heart to actually care for widows and orphans and the poor because some of these folks ain't never going to listen to anything we say when their belly's empty. It's just not going to happen. So, I mean, I absolutely believe God wants to bring increase, but the increase isn't just so we got more stuff. It's so that we can be a blessing to nations. 
if it's not going to translate into being a blessing for nations, then it just turns into American selfish capitalism. And that's, that's not really the heart of the Father. He said, my desire is that you prosper and be in health. This is what this word be in health means. That you prosper and be in working order. I mean, it's probably good to be in working order. That you are whole, uncorrupted, sound, with all parts working together, in balance. It's also from the word where we get hygiene from. And it means to be free from debilitation or handicaps. The Hebrew word would be shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. God's desire is that we be whole and in working order in every area of our lives. Because Paul said, we are whole and complete in him, but now we have to believe it. And let me go further. We have to think it. As a man thinks, the old covenant says this, as a man thinks where? In his heart, so is he. Now, I got to lay a... uh, a little bit of foundation. I'm going to promise. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to a point. Uh, we're going to we're going to have to get cerebral for a few minutes. Is that okay? All right. I know you guys are used to good teaching on here, so it's going to be all right. But uh, I mean, because we're we're heading we're heading somewhere. Because in in order to understand this, first of all, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word heart, it's never talking about man's spirit. In the New Covenant, we would hear heart, and we would be thinking about man's spirit. It's actually the Hebrew word nephesh, and it is soul. It is dealing with uh, man's emotions, man's mind, man's thoughts, man's design of will. When God breathed on Adam in the garden, he became a living nephesh. He became a living soul. So when David cried out, God created me a clean heart, nobody in the New Covenant ever needs to pray that prayer. You not only got a clean heart, you got a new one, all right? It's brand new. It's clean. Listen, in the new covenant, there's not a heart issue. Matter of fact, let me get so bold as saying this. Whenever you get into service and a preacher, and listen, sincerely, good people love God, this is sometimes sincerely wrong. When a preacher gets up and says, you've got a heart problem as a believer, they're preaching toxic old covenant thinking. Because the truth is, you have no issue with your heart ever again. It's been redeemed. It's been cleansed. There's a finished work in your spirit once and for all. you got a clean and a brand new heart. I never need to be David. God created me a clean heart. God did. But you didn't get a clean head. I, I like to explain it to people like this. It's, it's like, this is what religion does. Religion, we're going to use a hog just because that's a nice, unclean animal, but religion would take the pig out of the pig pen, spray it off, clean it down, bring it into the building, and then try to keep it clean by keeping it sprayed off and tell it how to behave. The problem is the door opens and the pig runs right back to the pig pen because it's a pig, because it's what pigs do. But true Christianity takes the pig out of the pig pen Yes, it cleans it up, but when it comes in the house, it does surgery on the pig. And it takes out the pig's heart, and it puts in a lion's heart. It gets a brand new heart. It gets a heart, a heart that's, a, that's lion-like. It's bold, but it's also lamb-like because it has this service and love type of heart. And so the door opens, and guess what? The pig still runs back to the pig pen because it's still got 
pig-headed thinking. It's pig-headed. The difference is this, is it gets in the pig pen and it starts wallowing around. And after a while, it looks down and it sees mud on its paws. And, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I don't think I like this. And maybe it starts licking the mud off a little bit because it doesn't really want the mud on there. But, but, but it's still thinking like a pig. And then after a while, rather than snorting every once in a while, like, I mean, all of a sudden a roar comes out of it because it's no longer a pig. It's a pig on the outside, but it's a lion on the inside. And that's kind of what happens a lot of times with Christianity is when people walk out of the building and they go back to the pig pen, then they tell them they're never actually in the building. When I was growing up, when folks would come out of the pig pen and they'd clean up right away, we'd say, no, they really got saved. You know, they really, they got saved. The same three people walk down to the aisle. The one guy, the one's still struggling. He's got habits in his life. He's still struggling in areas of his flesh. He's still got wrong thinking. Why? Because even though you get a clean heart, now you need your soul transformed. There's got to be a transformation of your thoughts. And toxic thoughts are law thoughts. The carnal mind, Paul said, is enmity. It is an enemy of God. Let's put it like this. The carnal mind is antichrist. See, a lot of times while we're all consumed with an antichrist over in Palestine going to rise up someday or over in Rome or now, now it's the Middle East somewhere. I mean, who knows? Most folks don't want to deal with the spirit of antichrist which normally is carnally-minded thinking that's between their own ears. Matter of fact, the biggest struggle is not in your heart. The biggest struggle is the six inches from one ear to the other because it is seeing our minds transform. That's why Paul said that we have to put on the mind of Christ. He said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He said, set your mind on things above. You know, through the old covenant, that was nearly... uh, it was nearly impossible unless God intervened. You have Isaiah for five chapters. Isaiah is a prophet of woe. I mean, every sermon, woe, woe, woe. Listen, how many of you know if you get focused on what's going on in the earth, it's easy to be a prophet of woe. If you watch too much MSNBC, CNN, and even Fox News, see, listen, it doesn't matter which one you watch. It's not going to be long. You're going to be a prophet of woe. You're going to go, Lord, have mercy. The world's falling apart. It's going to hell in a handbasket. God, everything's just getting worse. Chicken little, the sky is falling. You just start freaking out. And then when you look at your neighborhood and your circumstances and you look at what's going on around you, it's easy. Anybody can be a prophet of woe. Why? because you're focused on what's going on in the earth. But all of a sudden, God intervenes and supernaturally, Isaiah is caught up into the heavens. And when he gets up in the mercy seat, you see, when you prophesy from the judgment seat, I can always tell when I listen to somebody preaching if they're preaching from the earth or if they're preaching from the mercy seat. I can always tell if the message is coming from the heavens or if the message is coming from earth and it's coming from dirt because it's going to produce in you normally something you need and something you don't have rather than something that's already been given to you and something that you now have to learn how to walk out because when Isaiah gets in the heavens, he sees angels flying around the throne and they're shouting and declaring one to another, holy, holy, holy. Watch this. The earth is full of glory. Isaiah had to say, huh? How is the earth full of glory? I was just there. When I I was there. I didn't see glory. I saw woes. But God wants to turn your woe into some worship. He's like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to rise above your toxic thinking and carnality and flesh and old ways of viewing things. And I want you to begin to see. But watch, this is the only way you can do it. 
gets caught up into the heavens and he hears the angels, the earth is full of glory. The truth is the earth is full of glory. But the prophets also said that the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And I had one person say that to me and I said, it's true, but it actually says this, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory. See, our our proclamation of the gospel is to let people know, listen, the earth is already full of glory. You just don't know it. You have to become aware of it. Listen, our worship doesn't bring God's presence in. When we worship, it just helps us to become more aware that he's already there. When you pray, it doesn't all of a sudden cause God. Man, I was praying, and all of a sudden, it's like God came in the room. No, he was already there. Your praying just sensitized you to a reality. It took you from an old way of thinking into a new way of thinking. And so Isaiah, he sees this, and his reaction is, woe is me. I am, watch the verbiage, I am undone. I'm not finished. Watch this. He had no revelation of a finished work in the old covenant. He, he, he now gets caught up into the heavens where it's the ending from the beginning and he has a glimpse of what's coming and he sees what God was about to do in Christ Jesus from the mercy seat. He's like, man, I'm not finished. I'm undone. And so the angel took a coal off the altar. Not any coal. It said he took a live coal. What's a live coal? That is a coal that has fulfilled its purpose. It's fully hot. It's finished. He took a finished work off the altar, touched it to his lips. His message changed from what? whoa, whoa, to holy, holy, holy. That's why your right thinking will change your speaking. He can talk about that next week. See, the, the, the quicker uh, that, that, that we realize that God's design, who shall go for us and who shall we send? Who shall we send where? Who shall we send to the earth to reproduce what he just saw in the heavens? He said, I, I want you to realize and set your mind on things above. I want you to set your mind on things that are higher. That doesn't mean you become, as people have said, so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. No, set your mind on things above is that you're constantly thinking from a perspective of the mercy seat and not the judgment seat. You're thinking on things that are spiritual and not things that are carnal. Now, let, let, let me, I, I got to go right through this part quick. The reason that David had to cry out, created me a clean heart. Is you see, in the garden, when God first breathed into man, man was triune. He was spirit, soul, and body. But he was not tripartite. He was bipartite. Which means man was a spirit and soul, united, carrying around a body. Man was ruled not from the outside in. He was ruled from the inside out. His soul and spirit were never divided. We're going to get into that on one of these Wednesdays, Hebrews 4 talks about it, and it says the word of God is alive and powerful and quick, sharper than a two-edged sword. And the King James mistranslates it horribly. King James says dividing asunder soul and spirit. The truth is God never wanted our soul and spirit divided. That, that, that's the problem. The problem is there was a veil separating the outer court and the inner court. That's, that's your body, by the way. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, out, the, the outer court is a picture of your physical body. The inner court, a picture of our soul. Then there's a veil that separated the soul from the spirit, and it's called a veil of flesh or a veil of sin. That's why anyone that turns to Christ, the veil is removed. The veil is there. Toxic thinking is old covenant thinking. And according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, that that veil is is the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of death that was written on stones. So this, this is what happens. Adam and Eve, he's ruled. They're ruled from the inside out. I mean, how could you name all the animals if your mind was carnal? 
I want you to think about that. God's like, hey, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to bring every animal to you, and whatever you call it, what it's going to be. Cool. Here comes this animal walking in, big old long neck. He's like, kind of looks like a giraffe. God says, sounds like what I'd call it. Listen, in the garden, his mind is not carnal. His will is not rebellious. His emotions are not warped. There was a united soul and spirit. Man was ruled by his spirit, not his flesh. But then the serpent comes, and what does the serpent do? Serpent tries to get him to taste of the law. What is the tree? It's the tree of what? The knowledge of what? Good and evil. Thou shall, thou shalt not. Thou shall, thou shalt not. He tried to get him. He deceived him into believing it's not good enough to be God-like. You need to become like God. They were already in the image and likeness of God, but he said, you know what? It's not good enough for you to be God-like. Now you need to become like God in knowing good and evil. In other words, to learn how to judge to be who's in and who's out. He's like, you, you, need to, you need to be like God in this form. You need to taste of this. And so Adam and Eve, they taste of that fruit. And he said, if you day you eat of this tree, you will surely what? Die. Now, they lived 930 years. So, matter of fact, I think even the original Hebrew is you will begin to die. But we know at that moment, something happened. All of a sudden, a veil drops over man's spirit. It doesn't mean man still didn't have a spirit. God has placed eternity in every heart. But all of a sudden, there was a separation, according to Colossians 2, that we were enemies of God or alienated from God in our minds. All of a sudden, something dropped between the soul and spirit. So now, man became ruled from the outside in. He became a body and a soul, now carrying around a spirit that that was alive. It was there, but it was non-functioning because it was separated from God. Are you hearing me? But the separation wasn't that God separated because God still came down to walk with them in the garden. God didn't separate from man. Man separated from God because when you taste of the knowledge of good and evil, the law, what toxic thinking in the law does is the law revives sin. The strength of sin is the law. It's constantly causing. Paul put it like this. Paul said, I knew sin by the law. How did Adam and Eve know sin? By eating of the tree. Are y'all still with me? Are we we doing okay? No. It doesn't mean they were under law, but they had tasted, and it brought a separation. So now God's like, man, you know what? We got to do something about this because the greatest sin in the garden wasn't that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The greatest sin is they never ate of the tree of life. God said, I set before you two trees. I placed before you life and death. God gave them immortal life, but he never gave them eternal life. The God kind of life, Zoe, was that which was tasted. Taste and see. The Lord is good. He, he said, listen, you're going to live forever, and I'm putting these two trees there. The one, I'm telling you to stay away from, but he never told them to stay away from the tree of life. And I believe that we can know they didn't eat of the tree of life because after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said this. He said, you know what? I've got to put them out of the garden. Not because I want to throw them away. Not because I want to harm them. I'm actually wanting to protect them by my grace because now if they eat of the tree of life, after they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be immortally, eternally damned, unredeemable. They will be stuck in this state 
forever. Are, are we still doing all right? Okay. Anyway, I'm having fun. <laughs> I don't get to preach this a lot, so, you know. <laughs> and so God does something. He puts them out because of his goodness. He then places two cherubim with flaming swords. Actually, the original Hebrew actually gives a picture of these swords that are constantly in a circular flaming motion. And they're guarding not the tree, they're guarding the way to the tree. In other words, the only way back, see, God put Adam and Eve in a finished work. Completed it and said it is good. It gets to the end, gets to man, and the end, it's very good. God places them in a finished work. So the only way back to the garden is they're going to have to go through a sword. They're going to have to go through a flaming sword, or they're going to have to lose their mind. They're going to have to lose their head. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, He might have a place to lay his head if we'd ever lose ours. Hallelujah. Are y'all still there? I mean, no, we're never called the head. He, he's the head, we're the body in the new covenant. That, that was the sin, actually, of the Galatians, is they cut off the head. The, 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 the truth is removing Christ. That, that's why he wants his mind on us, not just our mind. He wants to transform our thoughts with his thoughts. That's why I remember years ago I preached, I preached a message called, Have You Lost Your Mind? Because sometimes the only way you can really fully step into what God has is you've got to lose your old thinking and begin to put on the new thinking. That's why you get to the book of Revelation and John said this. He said, I saw souls, not spirits. He said, I, not bodies. I saw souls under the altar that had been beheaded. Some translations say for the word of God, because of the word of God. A few translations actually say they were beheaded by the word of God. That actually, if we'd ever allow the word of God to literally behead our old thinking and begin to give us new thinking, you lose your head under an altar. Hallelujah. This something about when we humble ourselves and we allow, anyway, I got to stay focused here. I want to run off and preach that. It's been a minute. I got to stay focused. So the beautiful thing is now man is put out of the garden. Angels are guarding the way. And now that there's a veil, it's not that God then can't come to man. He continues to come to man, but he couldn't get in man until the veil problem was dealt with. So man was going to be toxic in their thinking until God could awaken again their spirit. And so Jesus goes to the cross, and he declares to Telestai, it is finished. And when he declares it is finished, it says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. You see, that wasn't just talking about the temple over in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, listen, know you not, know you not that you are the temple, that that temple was a picture of humanity. And he said, the veil wasn't rent now just so we could get back to God. The veil was rent so God could get back into us. He's like, now that the veil is out of the way, now I can have your soul and spirit united again. And now I can begin to walk through you and talk through you and live through you, that you don't just get my life, I am your life. 
Christ is our life. He said, listen, man, we got to get that, that, that wrong thinking out of the way. That, that's why, and I, I want to just submit this to you because I believe it's a beautiful picture. Uh, Jesus rises from the dead, tells Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter takes off running, but it says John also does. John gets to the tomb first, and John doesn't run inside for some reason. John stands outside. That bugged me. I'll get to it in just a second. It bugged me. Why didn't John run in? Why did John stand outside? But Peter goes running inside, and when Peter runs inside the tomb, what God gives him a vision of is two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. It was a picture of the mercy seat. Hallelujah. It was a picture that in between is where the glory of God manifested. And the angels are like, listen, why do you seek the living among the dead? Don't you know that he's not here? He was here, but he's no longer here. I want to just submit to you that perhaps the same two angels that were guarding the way were now the ones that were pointing the way. And they're like, if you want to now get back to the tree of life, it is his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the way. That is why John just stood outside. Why? Because grace is the one that's always pointing the way. But Peter runs in. Peter's translated stone. The law and toxic thinking has to get swallowed up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the more you come and get a revelation of the finished work, hallelujah, the more his life is produced through you, all of a sudden toxic thinking goes away. And all of a sudden, because it's, it's law thinking that's toxic thinking, it's condemnation, it's fear. It's rather than, he whose mind is stayed on me is kept in perfect peace. That's why Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Metanoi, change your thinking. What? Change your thinking about who you thought God was. You know, I don't know if you ever thought of this. It's interesting, but do you know that none of the sermons in the book of Acts, whenever the apostles were preaching to the Gentiles, they never preached repentance. In fact, the message of the Gentiles was just belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The message of repent was always to Jews because they're the only ones that had to change their mind about God. The Gentiles had no idea who it was in the first place. All right, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have any understanding. They didn't have to change their mind about what they were taught about God. They weren't taught anything about God. So all they had to do was believe. That's why I always have folks, well, you know, if you don't tell folks they got to repent and turn from their sin. Repentance says, listen, if you really change your mind, you will turn from your sin. But it actually, the word repentance has nothing to do with turning from sin. Because the word repent, repentance, is like 110, 112 times in Scripture. And more than 50 of them, more than half of them, is God doing it. God repenting. So if that's talking about turning from sin, then God's got some sin. And we're in a world of hurt right now. We, <laughs> you know, we might as well go back and, anyway... Or move to Colorado. Anyway, just, you know, something. <laughs> just, just go back and do all the stuff you wanted to do in the first. He's like, no, that's not the point of all this, man. He said, set your, set your mind on things above. Now, I, I want to I use a little example. Would you do me a favor? Would, would you grab that chair? And if you don't mind, would you, like, set it right there? And if you wouldn't mind sitting in it. <laughs> Listen, man, you got a flash shirt on. This is just going to happen. <laughs> Paul said, set your mind on things above. Paul also put it like this in Ephesians 2. He said, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So setting your mind on things above means I'm setting my thinking and my thoughts to the same place where my spirit is. 
In other words, I want my soul and spirit in the same place because spiritually, we're all in heaven already. That's like really good news. That means you just don't, you don't go to heaven when you die someday. You, uh, listen, you went to heaven when he died. Listen, he placed you. When he died, you died with him. When he was raised, you were raised with him. And now you're seated with him in the heavenly Christ. All right? And so now you go to heaven because you're already there. I, you know, I, I wonder what would happen if, if the church would just actually start acting like they're already there. We might actually have a few people want to go with us. I mean, a lot of Christians walking around like they're sucking on lemons. You know, I mean, be diligent, my brother, be diligent because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion. Just be sober. And it's like, listen, man, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. He's like, I wish above all things that you prosper. I want your journey to be happy. You know, I, I, I love this, and I'm going to give this example. Several years ago, uh, I read this little rendition. It was very interesting, but it said this. It said, they interviewed Rosa Parks one day, and they said to Rosa Parks, they said, did you have any idea that you were going to start the civil rights movement? I mean, you started a revolution in America. She said, no. She said, I'd worked a double shift. I was tired. I sat even in the right part of the bus, and a man walked up to me and asked me to give up my seat. And I just made up my mind. I ain't giving up my seat. I'm just not going to give up my seat for anybody. She started literally a revolution that transformed and is still transforming this nation and other nations. Well, somebody asked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. one day. They said, you know, where's your motivation? Who motivated you to do what you do? He said, a little lady who refused to give up her seat. Someone, several years later, they, they asked Nelson Mandela over in, with apartheid over in South Africa. They said, who motivated you to do everything you did in South Africa? He said, I was motivated by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was motivated by one little woman who just refused to give up her seat. They asked Lekwaleza over in Poland with solidarity. They said to him, they said, who motivated you to do what you do? He said, I was motivated by Nelson Mandela, who was motivated by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was motivated by just one little woman that hardly anybody knew anything about, who refused to give up her seat. They then asked, years later, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the walls of communism have come down. What, what, what happened there? And he said, well, I was really motivated by like Waleza, who was motivated by Nelson Mandela, who was motivated by Martin Luther King Jr., who was motivated by one little woman who just refused to give up her seat. I, I, I wonder if we could just get to the place where no matter what goes on around us, we just say, I'm not going to let my soul and my spirit become divided. Where we get to a place where we say, I'm going to think on things which are pure and lovely, things which are praiseworthy. I'm not going to allow all kinds of crazy thinking to come in my mind and conspiracy theories and, and freak out and all kinds of negativity. I'm not going to be a person of woe, woe, woe. I'm going to be a person of holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of glory. I see the earth is increasing. I see that God is transforming all over the world. But you see, what the world tries to do, and watch this, and the enemy of our soul. Watch this. You know that the devil's never called God's enemy? I mean, do you actually think God has enemies? I mean, do you think anybody could actually fight God? I mean, let's just think that one through for a second. You know, I, I mean, sometimes that should be a huh, you know. Never thought about that. Listen, if, if you try to, if he's the creator of all, he's above all, through all, and in all, ain't nobody going to fight God. 
I'm just telling you right now, he wins. All right, he's all powerful. All right, all in all. If we believe he's immutable, he doesn't change. God is God. All right, the devil, it's never called God's enemy, he's called your adversary. Your adversary, the devil goes about as a roaring lion. He's the enemy of your soul. We're, we're going to talk some this week about that too. The enemy of your soul. What does he try to do? He tries to get you out of your seat. You're at a place of peace because he whose mind has stayed on me is kept in perfect peace. And so he tries to get that boss on Monday morning after you had a great Sunday service and the presence of God was awesome. Woo, man, Jesus, you're good. And all of a sudden, that crazy person at work. Because how many of you know people try to get you out of your seat? Man, folks will pull you out real quick. Or all of a sudden, that one family member that triggers you because you got healed in areas of your soul yet. All of a sudden, they call you on Monday. And you've been doing good, man. You've been loving Jesus and patient. And all of a sudden, ah, I mean, just you freak out. <laughs> that person that just gets on your last nerve showed up. And what does it do? It tries to constantly get you out of your seat. You get bad news from the doctor. You got cancer in six months to live. And rather than stay at peace, rather than, rather than be at rest and trust, a lot of times what happens is we, we get out of the seat and then, and then or, or sickness happens and then, you know, you, you, you get online and, 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 and all of a sudden you're dead in a week, you know. As you see, life tries to get us out of the seat. Life tries to put us back under law and condemnation and tries to get us at a place where our spirit is at perfect rest. But the issue is our soul. The enemy cannot touch your spirit. Listen, he has no access. It's fully God, but now what's in my heart, my spirit needs to get into my soul and then get out of my body. That's why you work out your salvation and you don't work for or in your salvation. You're not working your salvation into you. You're working your salvation out of you. What's in my heart needs to get in my head and needs to spill out of my body. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Come on, the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's, that's why we pray that. Now watch this. We have a choice. The Apostle Paul understood this. Paul, he's in prison one day, and he's with a young protege named Silas, and they're laying in their own urine and feces, and it's not a good day. I can almost hear Silas, just a young man. He's like, man, I'm, I'm traveling with a man of God. I'm, I'm carrying his scrolls, and I'm... I'm being his armor bearer right now, and I thought... That meant that it was going to be glorious, and now we're in jail. It's like, what's up? You know, God, I didn't know I was going to be into this. And then Paul looks over at him, and he says, hey, Si, he's holy. Holy, holy, holy. It just says they started to sing in praise. We don't know what they were singing in praise, and who knows? Maybe they were just making that declaration. And, and Paul said, listen, you know what? Even though you're laying in your own poo, and it's nasty, you know what? You can set your mind on things above. Listen, Silas, I'm going to teach you a lesson right now. If all hell feels like it's breaking against you, don't give up your seat. Don't allow life, don't allow people, don't allow circumstances to take your peace, to steal your happiness in the journey because you can't do anything about what may happen to you. You can only do something about how you respond. And it's our response Matter of fact, Paul, a little bit later, he's captured and thrown in jail again, and this time 
he comes before King Agrippa. He's standing before King Agrippa, and he had been in the inner prison now. We're talking a little tiny jail cell, stinking and smelling, probably hardly had any food. They probably pulled him out, sprayed him down, and he comes before the king, and the king is on the throne with all of his long flowing robes. The king looks like he's in the right seat. And he's brought before him, and the king says, so, Paul, what do you have to say? And I love this, probably one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. He said, oh, king, I think myself happy this day. Notice he didn't say, I feel happy. He probably didn't feel real happy. I mean, you're laying in prison in, in a, they say, maybe a five-by-five cell. You can't even fully stand up in it. Your neck is probably just... You know, you need an adjustment like horribly. I mean, it's just, you know, cricking your neck. You're laying again in all of your own mess. And he says, I think myself happy this day. You know what, King? You look like you're in the right seat. And I look like I'm in the wrong seat. But actually, I'm in the right seat. And you're not in the right seat. That's why Paul could then write, set your mind. Set your thoughts on things above. I think myself happy this day. Listen, there's sometimes you have to think yourself happy because you don't feel happy. Circumstances happen. And, and, and that's where, that's where when, we, when we know that we're actually starting to mature, it's when we don't allow our minds to run crazy. We don't allow vain imaginations to take us over. But when life begins to happen to us, I, I like to put it like this. Sometimes preachers can get you out of your seat. Preaching the wrong covenant can do it. See, so sometimes in our sometimes in our lives we have to we just have to finally get to the place that no matter what negativity is going on around me, no matter how many woes, I just refuse to give up my seat. I, I refuse when these things are happening. But you see, a lot of times the reason we get out of the seat is because we don't know how to resist the adversary. We get out of the seat because there's still a bunch of veils. There's there's things that are frustrating us. That's why the, the, the Logos of God pierces the division of soul and spirit. You see, the, the, the veil can be removed, but the veil in the Old Testament tabernacle was three to four feet thick. It, it wasn't a little curtain. It was like over 30, 40 feet high in the, in the tabernacle, three or four feet thick. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says it pierces the division of soul and spirit. Because now that the veil's gone, soul and spirit are still divided. But 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 then they need to keep inching closer and closer. Because we need to get back now to that finished work to where my mind is no longer carnal, my will is no longer rebellious, my emotions are no longer warped. And I get back to Eden. See, Jesus already made the way. We know it because he's hanging on a cross and there's thieves and malefactors. Uh, I don't believe there was three. Matter of fact, back then they would actually crucify in fives. 
I believe there were two thieves on one side, there were two malefactors on the other, because there's two different Greek words for thief and malefactor. That's, that's, that's another teaching. And Jesus is in the middle. He's the fifth man, because five is the number of grace. Grace always gets in the middle of everything. But one of the thieves turns and says to Jesus, he says, you know, when you enter your kingdom, would you remember me? And the other one, he just says, if you think, if you are who you say you are, why don't you come down off that tree? Why don't you come down off that cross? And the other guy's like, listen, man, you be quiet. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. And sir, when you, when you enter your kingdom, would you please, please remember me? And I believe those three individuals are really a picture of the three main individuals really from Genesis to Revelation. It's the first man, the last man, and the enemy. The enemy always accuses, also a picture of the law. That's why it's called the synagogue of Satan. That's why not every time you see the word Satan and devil is it talking about the entity, the devil. Sometimes it's talking about the law. Peter, how do you know Peter didn't become the devil when he said, get thee behind me, Satan? He was saying, you're being adverse right now against my kingdom. What you're asking is not the purpose of the king. Then you have Adam. Adam's the one that said, listen, you be quiet. We deserve to be here because Adam was alienated from God and his mind separated, pushing God away. Jesus standing in the middle and Adam says, when you enter your kingdom, would you remember me? Now this is the beautiful picture of this. Remember doesn't mean would you have a thought of me? It literally means I've been dismembered. Would you remember me? Would you put me back? Would you put me back together again? And my thinking's been all jacked up. I've been toxic. I ate of the wrong tree. I now need to eat of the tree of life, and the tree of life is standing right here next to me. And if I'll eat of that tree of life, it'll transform my life forever. Would you remember me? I like to put it like this. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. All the great king's horses and all the king's men, the law and the prophets, couldn't put him back together again. But the king could. Only the king could actually put him back together again. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. The word paradise, when you translate it, goes all the way back. It's the same word, Eden. In other words, I'm going to put you back where you started. My desire was always for you to be in a place that was a finished place, a good place, a very good place. Eden is translated a place of voluptuous living. I just like that. Maybe it's because I'm a guy. Anyway, just. <laughs> he said, I'm going to put you back where, I all, where my heart was. That's why Jesus rises as the last Adam, the eschatos, the final Adam. I just submit to you, maybe there's been no more Adam since the cross. Hallelujah. Maybe he was the final one. And he started a new creation. He started over. Started a whole new world. And he says, you know what? Now the veil is gone. Now I'm on to live inside you. Now I want you to have my mind. I not only want to change your heart, 
I want to change the way you think about you, the way you think about your brother, and the way you think about my father. Let me transform your toxic thinking. Today, you shall be with me back in a finished work. I'm so glad that Jesus remembered us. We were dysfunctional for too long. And now when we receive the gospel, what he finished 2,000 years ago becomes a reality in us. He did all the work he's going to do, everything he's ever going to do. He finished it at the cross. But now we have to believe it by faith to enjoy the benefits. It's still something by grace through faith that becomes activated. And it begins to transform our soul. Bow your heads, would you? Father, I thank you today. I thank you so much that you not only cared enough to save us and regenerate us and give us new DNA, but you you cared enough to also save our souls. That you're concerned about our thinking, you're concerned about our believing. You, your desire is that we increase and succeed in the journey, be a happy journey in every area of our life, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what the enemy of our soul throws at us, regardless of life that takes place around us, we choose still to think ourselves happy. We choose you, and we thank you that you chose us. Thank you for giving us your mind. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Now I want you to do something. We just put your hands up near your, near your head like this. Just put both of your hands, and I want you to pray something with me, and I'll turn this to Pastor. Pray this out loud. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for saving me. Thank you that I have a new heart. I have a clean heart. Once and for all, forever forgiven, forever cleansed. But now help me by the Holy Spirit to put on your mind, to think on things which are above, things which are pure, lovely, praiseworthy, things which are of a good report. I don't want to be a person of woe. I want to be a person of holy, holy, holy. Help me to see from the mercy seat and not the judgment seat. Help me to see others the way that you see them. Transform my life, Father, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now just lift your hands just for a moment, would you? Father, I ask that you seal now the seed of this word in every heart, in every mind. Lord, I thank you for these next three Wednesdays, Father, for just metamorphosis for transformation. Thank you for revelation that's just going to unlock some things in us to understand that as we walk this out, we walk out our salvation through the transformation of our souls. Thank you for healing wounds. Thank you for soul transformation and lives changed. We'll thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.